carbohydrates are actually the solution. And I know that sounds crazy and people are like, man, that, is, that sounds bonkers. But somebody who actually just moves over to eating primarily high carbohydrate, low fat, plant-based foods, they begin to reverse insulin resistance because now you're starting to get rid of the excess fat inside these cells and you're now beginning to become more insulin sensitive. And so then when you eat that banana, when you eat that potato rich meal, your body has no problem taking the glucose out of the bloodstream. That was Robbie Barbero and this is Follow Your Kind Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome back. So Robbie is uh, one of my friends from the Peapod conference. I met him in 2017 uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Robbie is a co-founder of the Mastering Diabetes program. It is an online coaching program that has changed the lives of more than 3,000 people around the world living with type 1 diabetes, type 1 and a half, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes. Robbie is just an encyclopedia of knowledge uh, in diabetes from both his personal experience, experience working with his clients and coaching people, as well as the, the research um, and just the leaders in the, leaders in the field that uh, he has personally met and worked with. Before uh, starting Mastering Diabetes, Robbie has spent many years working in Forks Over Knives, a documentary that I'm sure many of you have seen and that has changed the lives of so many through revealing the truth about the health, ethical, and environmental implications of consuming animal products. This is a conversation uh, that where we dive deep uh, uh, in understanding the nature of diabetes, the biggest myths surrounding it, the financial consequences of diabetes in our economy, and the power that plant-based nutrition offers in healing our bodies. I hope you enjoy! All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Follow Your Kind podcast. I am extremely excited to have today on my show uh, my now friend for two years, Robbie Barbero. Hi, Robbie. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I love the name of your podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So just before we start, I want to give you like a quick background of how I met Robbie. And this is Robbie, just so you know how you live in my memories. Uh, every time I think of you is uh, we met at the plant-based pre- plant-based prevention uh, of disease conference not year not last year but the year before and uh, I remember you well first of all you uh, Tara and Katie were like the three brightest people in the room and you were like so serious and so completely immersed in the discussion of all the evidence-based uh, plant-based nutrition and I was like who are these people and you would have like your piles of fruit, this amazing fruit that was coming from somewhere that was not coming from the, like everybody else's buffet. And then I saw you pull out this box, huge box of fruit that I then learned that you travel with in the plane and put it in your carry on. And I was like, this is like the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. (laughs) That's too good. Yes. That's all factually true. I remember meeting you at that conference you were also the bright light that had to join the group so we had all four of us <laughs> a lot of fun yeah no it really was and uh yeah so and so you always travel with that box of fruit not that specific box but a box of fruit that you take as your carry-on and bring it on the plane and never have like problems with it essentially yes yeah. so the point is uh, that no matter where i'm traveling 
I take matters into my own hands. So if I was traveling to a place where, um, you know, I knew the person and they had already bought food and they showed me a picture and I, I'm confident I'm going to have her. <laughs> like I literally would need to see a picture to believe it and see if the stuff is ripe or not ripe. And then I would be like, okay, you know what? I, I don't need to bring as much of my own stuff. But in most cases, I always just bring my own and I have enough food for at least a day or two while I get situated and shop at the local stores. But yes, you can, you can bring a banana box. I'm not suggesting that other people bring an entire banana box because it's kind of heavy and it, could, it looks a little awkward. I guess some funny bucks walking through the airport. It's great. But the point Talking is... Talking about you, conversation starter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, the point is that you can bring food onto uh, an airplane no matter what. Even if you're traveling outside of the country, you can still bring food on the plane to eat while you're on the plane. You just can't take it into the country. But domestic flights, you can have a big tote bag. You could have, you know, more like a peach box or a nectarine box, or you could go all out and have a banana box and just fill it up. Or you could fill up your luggage um, and bring the food. So I'm always stocked up. If anybody's seen my Instagram pictures, they'll you know, see that I have a bunch of fruit on this big fruit rack. And I always buy extra, I always buy excess. So before I'm traveling somewhere, there's likely fruit that I can either put in my box and bring with me, or I'll put it in the fridge or I'll put it in the freezer. But there's always extra and I'm in, I'm in good shape. This is awesome. Come and prepared. I love it. Okay, so we'll talk in, uh, in just a little bit about why you have all the fruit with you at all times um, uh, when we start talking about your story and what you do. But I want to start on a little bit different topic. So, um, and I'll, uh, in, in the background, I spoke a little bit that uh, you are one of the co-founders of the Master in Diabetes program and you worked for many years uh, on uh, forks over knives. And thank you for that, because I, I cannot even imagine how many lives have been changed and affected by that documentary. So thank you for all the work and effort you put in it. Thank you so much. Thank you for saying that. It was uh, a lot of fun, and I'm just really glad to see that uh, everything worked out quite well with Forks Over Knives, and they continue to grow and expand, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I love their magazine too. But I wanted to preface it with uh, just a little bit of the uh, laying out the ground on the topic of diabetes. And uh, uh, I, I know many of people are aware, but just to kind of reiterate some of the numbers uh, of how many people are affected by diabetes in the United States as well as the costs and projections on that. So according to the report that came out in 2018, uh, we have about 30 million people in America who live with diabetes and 84 million that have pre-diabetes. And the, the costs are skyrocketing with over $327 billion spent per year on uh, healthcare costs that are related to diabetes. So this is just mind-boggling statistics. And uh, I know there are some efforts that are going in the direction of hopefully preventing or um, managing uh, the, uh, the health of our population and improving it. Um, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people are aware of the evidence, uh, scientific-based evidence uh, that is available today about the disease itself, about what causes it, 
uh, kind of what some of the different types and components are and that there is even a possibility of not only prevention but also arrest and reversal of disease. So I thought maybe you can, um, we can start by you helping us to kind of navigate the ground and uh, if you could explain uh, just basically the concept of diabetes one and two, I know there is also talk about one and a half and kind of what that is and what causes it. I know it's a loaded question but I kind of let you navigate whatever think, whatever way you think makes more sense it's a terrific question uh, um looking forward to answering it and i just want to reiterate uh, all those numbers you said those are factual numbers things are only getting worse and you know you and i both were studying to earn our masters in public health and i know we're sort of looking at it from that bigger picture yeah and it's uh it's sad so i hope that everybody listening to the show is going to learn a lot and share it with people uh, who need to hear this information but starting with the basics, the difference between type 1, type 1.5 diabetes, those two conditions are considered an autoimmune condition. And then prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, those are not an autoimmune condition, right? Now, what they both, what they all have in there's similarities here is that there's elevated blood glucose levels. That's how somebody would get diagnosed with any form of those diabetes, those any forms of diabetes. Now, we don't know what causes type 1 or type 1.5, but what happens is something damages the beta cells in our pancreas. So I'm living with type 1 diabetes. My co-founder of Mastering Diabetes, Cyrus, he's also living with type 1 diabetes, and we don't know what happened, but our pancreases do not produce a sufficient quantity of insulin. Therefore, we have to inject insulin to manage our blood glucose levels. Now, type 1 with one of the criteria is that they have a C-peptide of 0.2 or less, all right? Now, C-peptide is a test that can tell you how well your pancreas is producing insulin. So once somebody is 0.2 or below, they're in a range where their pancreas is producing close to zero. I'm actually, I have my level tested, it's 0.1. It's actually undetectable, it's less than 0.1. So that's why I have to inject insulin, you know, to manage my blood glucose. Now, somebody with type 1.5 diabetes, their, their C-peptide level has not gotten severely low to less than 0.2. It's just at a point where they're not producing enough. So they're not completely burnt out um, or the beta cells aren't completely damaged. They're still producing some, and that's how they can manage their blood glucose oftentimes without any medication in the beginning. Now, an additional component of type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes is the presence of antibodies. So the most common one is GAD, another one is IA2, there's a couple other antibodies that are associated with type 1 and type 1.5 diabetes. Now, I just want to bring to light some interesting information on that topic. So the conventional wisdom is that autoimmunity is when the body starts attacking itself. It gets confused, there's some molecular mimicry, and the body starts damaging its own beta cells. Now, there is this guy, Anthony William, the medical medium, who is fascinating, and he has brought to light this concept that, you know what, maybe the antibodies are actually fighting a virus. So the antibodies are not actually attacking our own body, but they're fighting a virus or some bacteria or something like that. And that's an interesting, interesting concept and we that could have an entire podcast conversation on that. 
But I just wanted to drop that piece of knowledge for anybody mm-hmm. listening to this who might want to think about that, muse on that, and see where that takes them in their own life. Because it does, it does mean a lot to me personally in the sense that, hey, wait a minute, maybe there's hope here for healing. So that's a whole other story. But moving on to prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, all right? So the cause of those two conditions, we do know, and that is insulin resistance. So when a person has too much fat stored inside their cells, their muscle liver cells, that inhibits the ability of insulin to function properly. So insulin's job is to take glucose out of the bloodstream and into our body's cells. When insulin is not functioning properly, primarily because there's too much fat or inside these cells. Glucose gets built up in the bloodstream. You now have high blood glucose, and then you're diagnosed with prediabetes and eventually type 2 diabetes. Now, in the beginning of this process, your body can sort of overpower the problem, and it just produces more and more insulin and just kind of manhandles its way to get the glucose out of the bloodstream and into the cells. Now, eventually, the body just gets tired. The beta cells get worn out and they essentially, they die. And so a person living with type two diabetes who's had it long enough can potentially get to a point where they become an insulin dependent uh, diabetic. And the reason is because their pancreas is so burnt out, they now also have a compromised C-peptide level, you know, less than uh, 1.0 in most cases. Mm-hmm. So. That is a, a big issue with type 2 diabetes, and that's where we get into the confusion of, you know, why not every single person living with type 2 diabetes responds immediately and then reverses it, like you'll hear a lot of people like me and Cyrus and other experts talking about. It's when they get that C-peptide test and we realize, wait a minute, how much insulin are you producing in your own body? Then we can answer the question of what is your ability to completely reverse the condition? So pre-diabetes, in most cases, again, if you catch this stuff early, people are producing excess amounts of insulin, and they absolutely can reverse all their diabetes symptoms, lower their A1C, lose weight, all that stuff, because they have plenty of insulin being produced. They just need to reverse the insulin resistance so the insulin can function properly. So that was a lot of information. I hope people are still with us. You still with me? I am. No, I definitely am. And one thing I wanted to highlight is uh, the um, the concept of carbohydrates or sugars causing type two diabetes versus fats. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I think a lot, a lot of people are not up to date on on that uh, kind of mechanism. Yes. So I'm glad you asked. Now, here's what happens. And again, the reason people are so confused makes complete sense. Because somebody could be living with diabetes, type 2, type 1, doesn't matter. And they eat a lot of feed of a couple bananas, you know, one or two bananas. They eat an apple or two. They eat uh, a potato dish. And it's a very healthy, clean one. Maybe they saw me or you on Instagram and they decided to make one of our meals. And they eat it. And boom, their blood glucose skyrockets. They see a 200, a 250, a 300. They say, look, the carbohydrate meal just made my blood glucose go through the roof. How can you say that it's not the carbs that made my blood glucose high? And that's very logical, I get it at that point. But if you don't know that piece of information about uh, what is insulin resistance, 
And, and why is your body having a challenge taking that glucose out of your bloodstream into your cells? Then you'll be confused. And the missing piece is, is that insulin resistance is caused by, primarily caused by, excess fat stored inside your muscle and liver cells. That is the reason. So the problem is that people are eating these high carbohydrate meals or high carbohydrate snacks while they are currently following a high fat diet or a medium fat diet and while they are already have excess fat stored inside their cells and have developed insulin resistance. So that's the disease. That's the real issue. The high blood glucose is just a symptom of insulin resistance. So what ends up happening is carbohydrates are actually the solution. And I know that sounds crazy and people are like, man, that, is, that sounds bonkers. But somebody who actually just moves over to eating primarily high carbohydrate, low fat, plant-based foods, they begin to reverse insulin resistance because now you're starting to get rid of the excess fat inside these cells. You're not contributing to it. And you're now beginning to become more insulin sensitive. And so then when you eat that banana, when you eat that potato rich meal, your body has no problem taking the glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. Awesome. Okay. Now that we have the, the map lined out, I want to get back and uh, have you tell us your story and then kind of through getting back to mastering diabetes, maybe we can uh, get closer to the solution and talk more about what can people do to uh, improve their conditions. So um, I know you mentioned that you live with type 1 diabetes. And uh, can you tell a little bit of uh, when you were diagnosed, how that happened, and how you found your way towards plant-based nutrition? Absolutely. So <clears throat> I have been living with type 1 diabetes for 18 years. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 12, just about to turn 13. And then I've been following this low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet for 12 years. So there was a six-year period of me trying some different things, figuring some stuff out, and having a lot of experience uh, as a person living with type 1 diabetes, doing a standard American diet, doing a Western A. Price diet, and then eventually doing a sort of ketogenic plant-based diet. So right. in short, the most important takeaway point from my experience was that when I did the plant-based ketogenic approach, okay, where I was not eating more than 30 grams of carbohydrate per day, was getting pretty much all my calories from nuts and seeds, and I had a lot of greens. Mm -hmm. When I was doing that, as a person living with type 1 diabetes, my total insulin usage was roughly 10 units, okay? That's a very small amount of insulin. And I want to address this point because there's so much confusion, especially in the world of type 1 diabetes, where people think taking less insulin means insulin sensitivity or taking less insulin is better and that's not necessarily the case because as a person with type 1 diabetes remember my pancreas is producing pretty much none of its own insulin mm -hmm. my goal is to inject the same amount of insulin that my body would have normally produced when it was producing its own insulin that's the goal so when i'm uh, what i would produce as a healthy, happy, functioning human being, pancreas functioning perfectly, that's the amount of insulin I want to inject, all right? Mm -hmm. So 
when I was doing, so we're talking about 30 grams of carbohydrate and about 10 units of insulin. That's a three to one ratio over a 24 hour period. So that's how we can easily measure insulin sensitivity in people living with type one diabetes. Now, as I begin transitioning to a low fat plant-based whole food diet through a coaching program with Dr. Doug Graham, I signed up for an online coaching program with him. I started to the first week, a nothing but bananas, literally just bananas. Every meal, every day, just bananas. How many bananas a day would you eat? Well, that's a good question. I would say <laughs> uh, 10, 15. Okay. I mean, in the beginning, your stomach isn't used to that volume of food. So you, the part of this benefits of, a, of, a, of this type of diet anyways is that it's kind of naturally calorie restricting mm-hmm. the volume uh, of the water and the fiber. So in the beginning, I probably, you know, it wasn't super easy to eat the calories I needed. And then over time, I could eat more bananas in, in a day, if that makes sense. So uh, anyways, I started eating. Then next week, I eat bananas and lettuce. And then the next week, I add another fruit. So now I'm doing this basically straight up fruit-based diet, lots of mono meals. And what ends up happening is I increase my total carbohydrate intake to roughly 700-ish, 750, 800 grams of carbohydrate per day. And my insulin usage, it goes up, you know, roughly now, I mean, I'm going to give you the current numbers of today. It's roughly like 750 grams of carbohydrate per day. And then roughly, you know, 36 to 38 units of insulin. So the total units of insulin goes up, but my insulin sensitivity has improved dramatically. So that's where now my 24 hour insulin sensitivity is more like 18 to one. And so this is where we have all this confusion. And I'm just sharing this from my, my personal experience that's sort of tied into the, all the confusion in the world of diabetes right now, which is that yes, if you do a ketogenic, a low carb diet, if you do it properly, you execute it the way the, the people teach. In a lot of cases, in most cases, you'll see flatline blood glucose. You'll see insulin dosages go down. For type twos, you see oral medications go away. You know, rapid weight loss. You'll see cholesterol. You see all these great benefits, and people are like, "Wow, like that's the solution to diabetes." I mean, why do we? Why are we doing anything else? And the problem is, so in my own personal experience, I, I felt terrible. I, I, was, I was on campus at the University of Florida, several situations where I essentially blacked out, and it was really scary. So that's what led me to seek out other approaches, and that's how I ended up finding the plant-based approach. Mm-hmm. But there is long-term data on people eating low-carbohydrate diets is not good. You have basically increased risk of all-cause mortality, and it's just, it's, it's a disaster. Now, there also, there aren't any long-term societies who have followed this approach, okay, of, of, of restricting carbohydrate consumption. Now, exactly. every single long-term society, every single one that we can look at where people have a, had a long life and they had low chronic disease, every single one of them had high carbohydrate foods as a staple in their program. I mean, some include a little bit more animal products than others, but all of them ate high-carbohydrate foods like fruits, like potatoes, like rice, like beans. You can learn more about this through the Blue Zones and Dan Butner and all that work. But I know I got off tangent of my own personal story, but I'm, I'm just trying to make the point here that as a person living with type 1 diabetes, 
I had that unique experience of seeing what happens on a, so a plant-based ketogenic approach and then seeing what happens when I go and I start eating a ton of fruit. You would think that if this, this mindset that carbohydrates have a problem, you would think that I would have needed some insane amount of insulin. I should have needed hundreds and hundreds of units of insulin to cover this, these fruit meals, but that's not the case. I ended up going to a normal amount of insulin. So people can calculate that by taking their, um, their body weight in kilograms and multiplying it by 0.6. That'll give you about an average of how much insulin any given, every, any given person's pancreas is producing on its own. It's mm -hmm. so right around in that ballpark while I'm eating you know, lots of carbohydrate-rich meals. So it's a long-winded way of saying that uh, my own journey has shown me objectively, and again, I see this every single day, everybody living with type 1 diabetes can see it every day, that you become more insulin sensitive as you lower the fat intake and increase your carbohydrate intake. Now, one might ask, why does it matter to be insulin sensitive? Like, who cares if you were at a three to one insulin sensitivity? Like, why does that matter? And the reason it matters is because if you look into the research, over and over and over again, you will see that insulin resistance is connected or, you know, a, a sort of a precursor or a central node for a wide, wide range of diseases, including cardiovascular disease, including Alzheimer's, PCOS, erectile dysfunction, cancers, the list goes on and on and on. And people living with diabetes, they don't die of high blood glucose readings. All forms of diabetes, the number one thing that kills people living with diabetes is heart disease. Right. So not, you, you want to maximize your insulin sensitivity. You want to eat these foods that are protective of your heart health, your kidney health, your eye health. You, you want to eat foods that are loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, fiber, water content, and glucose. Because you could do a plant-based ketogenic diet. You absolutely could. And, and there's, there's people are advocating that. But in that situation, again, you're, not, you're basically making your primary fuel source fat instead of glucose, which we are designed to run on. Right. No, and I, I just want to also bring attention to the fact that I think you're, you're, I mean, such a valuable contributor to this space because you come from so many different backgrounds and you combine your personal experience, as you said, of six year journey of uh, trying and experimenting with all of the, all of these different approaches and diets and finding out how each of them works for you, for your existing condition. And then also, I mean, the amount of effort and, and, and work that you put into research and, and, and taking this and looking at the studies. And as I remember you telling me like at both conferences that, you know, you, you read like studies and, and different reports for like fun and you go through this data and then you look at the actual science so i think it's just so valuable from to hear from somebody who's speaking from both experience and science versus from you know some rumor or some fad diet that they found on i don't know some facebook ad absolutely and the science is so clear it's mind-boggling i mean the science goes all the way back to 1926 dr sansom trying out he literally called it in his studies had a radical experiment of feeding his diabetic patients more carbohydrates. And he did that in the form of there was potatoes, there was fruit, there was, there was white bread. 
And in that case, he saw, he's, the study was a, a review of 150 patients that he started trying this on. And he saw that they didn't need to change their total insulin. It stayed about the same. So he said, to them, he, he was just like, wow, that's, that's interesting. The fact that I'm adding all these carbohydrate-rich foods, yet they need about the same amount of insulin, which is, again, they didn't really know this in, in 1926. They weren't really speaking the same language we speak today. But that was a sign of increased insulin sensitivity. These people are eating more grams of carbohydrate and the same amount of insulin is able to take that glucose out of the bloodstream into the cells. So it's just, it goes back. And then there's more. I mean, you have Walter Kempner feeding people the rice fruit diet. Right. He literally feeding people nothing but white <laughs> rice, fruit juice, um, white sugar, and some fruit. And that showed reversal of diabetes in a lot of cases. Hypertension was reversed, massive weight loss, like tr serious, serious obesity turned around, uh, retinopathy, neuropathy. It was just remarkable, the guy's results. I mean, I there's tons of pictures, but the bottom line is, if anybody goes and looks at this, they will see over and over and over again that this, this fundamental point, I hope when people walk away from this podcast, they remember one thing. When you eat a low-fat diet and you eat a bunch of carbohydrate-rich foods, whole carbohydrate-rich foods, you are improving your insulin sensitivity and in that case you are then reversing prediabetes reversing type 2 diabetes because that is the cause of those two and for type 1 and type 1.5 you're making it a heck of a lot easier to manage much more predictable and you're reducing your risk of the complications which are the things that end up killing you anyways high blood glucose is not the biggest concern and of course on this diet you don't you don't have you know high blood glucose you certainly manage it but it's not to be worried about People are way too much micromanaging their blood glucose numbers in the short term instead of focusing on long-term health. And so all they're worried about is their A1Cs. You got this whole ketogenic community thinking, oh, we got to get our A1Cs in the 4.3, 4.5. And, and again, I respect these people. I, I, I love them because uh, anybody who's taken the effort to go and follow any of these diets, like kudos to you. Like, that's awesome. Uh, our biggest problem is apathy. Uh, in this world. So those people who are trying, like, it's, it's awesome. But they're missing the boat in just the short-term focus on uh, short-term results and A1Cs and not overall health and insulin sensitivity. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems to be the trend nowadays, short-term results versus long-term results. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell me how did mindful uh, diabetic and mastering diabetes come into play? Okay. So I graduated from University of Florida in 2011, and that's when I started my internship with Forks Over Knives. So my last semester of college was an internship, and I was majoring in sort of event management and business administration. Uh -huh. So I was able to convince my professor that working at Forks Over Knives which I had planned to do after college anyways as a position, that it just worked out perfectly uh, saying that I was going to do event planning because I was planning pre-screening events. So at this point, the movie was, um, was in the pre-screening mode. So basically, we were doing screenings with Whole Foods. So a lot of Whole Foods grocery stores around the country we would set this up. And of course, there was a lot of other work being done. But I convinced my professors, and it worked out just fine. So, and I'm just curious, at that time, did you, did you have a sense that it's going to be like such a huge deal as it was? Like, did you have any idea what you were, what 
an amazing project you were getting yourself into? Okay, so here's the deal. The answer is yes, and I'll explain why. So I had initially done an internship, not an internship, it was a summer job, uh, like prior to that. And that's how part of the way I, I knew Brian and, and Brian Wendell, he's the founder, creator, executive producer. He is everything Forks Over Knives. Like he, he is the man behind the whole thing. So he's a good friend. And I had met him at a retreat in Costa Rica. And then I did that uh, a summer job and we uh, you know, had a good time working together and, and realized that there was an opportunity in the future once the movie was going to come out. But I knew in the beginning, even when I was doing that summer internship, that, you know, Brian, he was taking this very seriously. He was hiring the right people that were uh, very qualified and just had a track record of success. And we just both um, believe so much in this message. Like people are ready to hear this. That's and Brian awesome. would always tell people, like, this is the, I, the reason I made this documentary, he would say, is because this is a news story that nobody was telling. Like if somebody knew that there was a, a, like a pill who could, that could reverse these chronic conditions that are just killing our country, it'd be on the cover of Time Magazine, everybody would be talking about it. But yeah, we already have the solution, like what's going on? So we knew that. And then um, we, we had done some screenings. It was, this is in uh, January of 2011. No, I, the month might be wrong, but early 2011, we we're doing screenings. And uh, it did really, really well. Like it, it first uh, premiered in, in Portland and it was sold out. People were literally outside standing in lines around the theater and we're like, man, this is great. So the projections, projections were looking good. And then we did a, a nationwide release played, I think over 80 theaters and um, it was all good. And then once the DVD came out in August of 2011, it was really good. Uh, this was an interesting time where most movies did not go straight to Netflix. So Brian and the film distributor made a rare decision to take the movie and go straight to Netflix and DVD simultaneously mm -hmm. rather than going to DVD. And that had a big impact. We had there's a lot of celebrities that saw it. There's a lot of buzz. And I think, you know, a lot of people would then buy the DVD for their parents and who might, you know, be more familiar with that. And it just, it just went, it went well. And we just believe in the message. And Brian is just a great, great storyteller. He's an unbelievable executive producer and just his whole management of, of the whole operation is, it was really fun to be there. I was there for six years and got to be Brian's right-hand person to learn a lot. And then, you know, eventually while I was there, I, you know, Instagram was starting to become more popular and I just started my own account and thought, oh, I want to do a YouTube channel. I want to do some coaching. So I did that on the side. And then um, Cyrus and I met up while we were doing a speaking engagement in San Francisco and he was sort of doing the same thing. He had his Mango Man Nutrition and Fitness. He was coaching people. He was providing education and we started doing some group coaching together. And we had a lot of fun. It went well. And we're like, hey, man, like, let's, let's do this full on. And January 1st, 2017 was the first day that Mastering Diabetes as a company existed. And we put all our energy into that together. It's like one plus one is a lot greater than two. And so far, it's, uh, it's been really good, really fun. So we did an online summit in January 2017. That was our first summit where we interviewed the world's leading experts. I mean, it's really been an honor to become friends and get to know a lot of these people. 
people like Dean Ornish, Neil Barnard, Michael Greger, Matt Letterman. I mean, the, I'm sure yeah. I'm forgetting his name. Yeah, with all the rock stars on, on, the, on that summit, yeah. So it's been, it's been really fun to be connected. I mean, Michelle McMacken, Rob Osfeld, you know, some of the younger crew, and, and there's just a lot of people. So this is our third year we're launching a summit uh, real soon and got to interview many of those people you know, three times and also bring in a lot of new experts. And we're just, Cyrus and I, we're super like, honored and grateful to have the chance to bring this information to people. Like, there's really, there's not really anything new that we've necessarily invented. It's just, it's just sort of bringing this information and the evidence to light. And particularly, I mean, our pro program is unique in the sense that it's very, very fruit friendly. Like, we encourage large consumptions of fruit as much as people want. And that's a little bit, that's unique. But it's not unique in the sense that it's already in the research, you know, like the research, yeah. there's no, there's no, there's not a single study that shows when people eat a lot of fruit in a low fat environment that nothing, anything bad happens, but yet only good things happen as people consume more and more fruit, even, even if it's not in a low fat environment. But uh, we're just bringing this to light and, and telling people and the results are fantastic. We have over 2000 people in our coaching program. I kid you not when I say every day there is some sort of success result coming through our coaching program. So we have a, a Facebook group where people um, communicate, get support, they ask questions. Our team answers all questions within 24 hours. And every day somebody's posting in that group, hey, this is the first time I've ever seen a bug glucose in single digits. Like, thank you, Mastering Diabetes. Thank you, coaching staff. And I went to my doctor. My A1C is 5.5%. They took diabetes off my record. It's, uh, you know, type 1. Like, I have never, ever had an A1C below 6%, and now I'm at 5.8. Stuff like that um, over and over and over again because it just absolutely works. We have a very simple program. We've made it very easy to understand. And the fact that Cyrus and I, we live with type 1 diabetes, but we also live this lifestyle as we teach it. Uh, which is, you know, very clean, very simple, uh, very affordable type of lifestyle that uh, I think helps inspire people to, to do it and know that, that they can get these same results. No, that's so amazing. And tell me, so this is the program, who is, who is like the perfect uh, kind of customer or consumer for this program? So anybody who has diabetes, one, two, one and a half, or pre-diabetic or interested in information and community or coaching and support? So the ideal person is anybody who is currently living with any form of diabetes, so type 1, okay. type 5, pre-diabetes, type 2, or gestational diabetes. We can help all forms of diabetes, no questions asked. We, we guarantee it. We have what we call an action taker's guarantee. If somebody comes to our program and you actually you prove to us that you've done what we've asked you to do and you didn't get results, then you get your money back. So we have an action taker's guarantee. Wow. The other person who could uh, be a good fit is somebody who – really believes they are at risk for pre-diabetes. They've been told that maybe their A1C is slowly elevating or they you know, have a family history of it and they're ready to take action in order to you know, optimize their overall health. And I say that because, of course, this program could apply to any disease. Somebody could have heart disease, they could have kidney problems, like all this stuff could happen uh, and we could help them. But it's not, we're not designed to do that. You know, when you look in the group, the vast majority of the conversations are, you know, they're diabetes specific. When mm -hmm. we do our live Q&A calls, people are asking about diabetes, they're asking about blood glucose, 
and you know all the medications that are involved and, and that's the stuff we are really experts in and not so much in all the nuances of other conditions although we've had we've certainly had, like you can go look on our website we've had many people reverse fatty liver disease um, we've had a woman who reversed stage three um, kidney disease wow uh, neuropathy uh, ret retinopathy like somebody who was told he's supposed to have uh, he did six bypasses and he found our summit and decided to try the diet first and he avoided those bypasses so that's heart disease and remission right there um, so you know but again, all those people, they also had diabetes and that's where they came in. That was the main thing they were focusing on. And then as an external benefit, these other conditions got solved as well. That is so cool. What it is that you think, and I'll make sure to, for the listeners, I'll make sure to include the links uh, to the programs and to the uh, signups and to the summit that we mentioned in the show notes to make sure people can easily find you. But uh, what do you think, what it is that you think that the participants of your program, uh, what is the most valuable thing that you think they, they get out? Is it the community support? Is it the, the kind of the science that they were not aware of that's kind of broken down in the way that they can, under they can understand? And the reason I'm asking this question is because I'm in healthcare and I'm curious how your the methods and kind of the approach that you're taking can also potentially be taken up to a level where it can be made accessible to larger populations of people. Uh, as, it, as we talked about at the beginning, the CDC has diabetes prevention program right now, but theirs is structured differently and it certainly does not have nearly as much of an emphasis on plant-based whole food plant-based nutrition that is you know high in whole carbs so i'm just curious what it is that you think that people are getting out most from the program so that's a fantastic question and there's two different answers depending on the stage at which they are in so community is so so important and that is what helps people stick to this long-term. That's one of the components of long-term success is surrounding yourself with other people who do this, who you talk to about it, who you can share recipes, share ideas, have some accountability. It's great for long-term success. Now, in the short term, I would say the education that we provide and sort of the nuanced experience that we have in helping people through the transition and really getting over the fear of like, wait a minute, why is my blood glucose 250 today? And how do I handle that? Or for people living with insulin-dependent diabetes, you know, the Dawn phenomenon. Why is my blood glucose going up when I exercise? Or this specific food is resulting in this result. And our ability to make those tweaks and make those adjustments with a system that has, you know, you really basically 24-hour availability in the sense mm -hmm. that you within 24 hours is, is very unique. It's very special and are, you know, again, Cyrus uh, and, and my personal experience adds a lot of value there in the beginning. But you're exactly right. Uh, and, we, you know, the way you're thinking about this big picture, you know, we have a crisis here and, you know, mastering diabetes, us, you know, running, you know, 2,000, 3,000 people through our program uh, is not going to solve the crisis. We, we need a, a bigger, large scale solution. And I really think it just comes down to people getting the facts straight. We're gonna, there's going to have to be some level of accountability where um, people like organizations like the CDC and other organizations, they, they, can't, they can't not tell the truth. I mean, if you look at the ADA, it's just 
it's just the facts are incorrect. Like it's yes. just missing, you know I mean? It needs to be a truly, truly evidence-based program and guide guidelines and it just doesn't exist. So, you know, one thing we didn't touch on, which is the fact that you'll have a lot of people go look at studies that said they compared a low fat diet and a low carb diet and they saw the low carb diet outperformed it. And every single one of those studies, we've looked at them, there's a lot of them. They did not actually do a low fat diet. Okay, the research is saying a low fat diet is, you know, 30% of calories or less coming from fat. And those, food, those diets also include animal products. We're saying a low fat diet is a maximum of 15% of calories from fat and it reduces or eliminates animal products. So the fat that you are eating is coming from plant foods and not all the saturated fat that is found in animal products. Right. So we, it's just, you know, I know you and I, we think about it on a regular basis. And <laughs> the, stuff, the stuff we're learning and then you know, being you know, forced to go through our education, I'm just shaking my head all throughout this process being like, what is going on? And, you know, every time my mine's an online education, so I'm writing forum posts and just consistently just reminding people like, where is the logic? I mean, where is the logic here? Well, we just did an interview with Rip Esselstyn today, and he was saying that the the healthcare budget is like three point seven trillion dollars, and he said that the defense budget is somewhere around like eight hundred billion. That I mean, is just. The discrepancy, the amount of money we are just wasting. And he's also explaining how, you know, majority of that 3.7 trillion is on these chronic diseases that we have answers to. Like we, we know how to reverse heart disease. We know how to prevent heart disease. That's our nation's number one killer. We know how to prevent and reverse diabetes. And then you have prostate cancer, you have breast cancer. We have, there's plenty of case studies, research showing reversal of these diseases. And yet... This is, not, this is not the diet that's being taught. This is not the diet that's being fed to our kids in school. Like we, we have these public health problems. So I, I commend people like you and anybody else out there who's fighting the good fight and trying to sort of change these organizations. Everybody's got to do their part. I'm coming at it more from the private sector and just being like, hey, we're going to help people who are ready to be helped. And hopefully there's a snowball effect and more and more people you know, just showcase what's possible. And eventually these organizations can't ignore it anymore. That's uh, part of my mission. But, uh, you know. I no, wish absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for everything that you do and for the just amount of the, the integrity that you have in your work and, and you know, the, the passion that you speak with. I mean, it's definitely not missed. And the amount of people that I'm sure are touched by your program. I, I think you said it's over 2000 people that went through your program already. And I'm sure the ripple effect reached to so many more people than that. Um, so thank you for, for everything that you do as well. And I want to be respectful of your time. I know you have uh, another meeting and uh, I've already taken an hour of your time that I'm very, very thankful for. I have one more last question that I like to close with, but I wanted to first check if there's anything else that you wanted to share with the audience, maybe some parting words that you want to say before I ask my last question. Well, this is great. I'm excited to answer the last question and I really appreciate everything you're doing. I mean, uh, I just, you're, you're an unforgettable personality and you know, you're everything you got going on when we first met in uh, the conference and now you're doing this podcast and you're taking the time to, you know, get the education. So like, thank you for everything you're doing and contributing. Like we, we all have to, 
um, contribute to this. Everybody's got to play a part. Everybody's got to do their role. Everybody has, you know, their own unique experience and skill set that can contribute to raising awareness about this stuff. And the fact that you're doing it uh, is a big deal. Thank you so much for your words. And absolutely, together, I really believe that it only takes, what, 10% of the population to to get the curve and to get the ball rolling for the tipping point for everybody else to change their perspective. So I think between you and me and a few more people, we get it. We got it started. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so I usually last ask, um, uh, finish with a question of uh, kindness. So uh, as you know, the name of the podcast is Follow Your Kind. And uh, the way I look at it is each of us has their own definition for the value of kindness. But intrinsically, uh, every single one of us wants to be kind. Um, so I think by really thinking through, reflecting on our value of kindness and following it intentionally in our daily lives, we each get to make this world a better place. So I'm curious about your definition of kindness and what it means to you and how do you uh, follow it in your daily life? What a fascinating question. I love that. <laughs> Man, my definition of kindness, you know, I'm going to say it would be loving yourself like i think when i think about all the time and energy and effort i put into uh this lifestyle it really comes down to if we if we can love ourselves and we can treat our body in a respectful way then we have the ability to do that for others and i think we got to start there and and when you start with that kindness like it's just automatic it's, a, it's just a snowball effect you know you start feeling so good you have so much energy that you just want to automatically contribute to other people's lives and, and have them have the same experience you're having. So I think it starts with, you know, kindness to your own body. And I think at, at the beginning, it starts with uh, the foundation would be a, a healthy diet, a healthy lifestyle, starting with food and movement and sleep and all that stuff. But of all those things, the one where we are the most off base is our diet. So just loving yourself and, and eating food that you know serves your body well and makes you feel amazing. I love it. Amen. I'm smiling through as you as you say the words you're saying. Awesome. I love that. Well, I thank can, you so much. Smile through the microphone. <laughs> thank you so much again for your time, Robbie. Um, I really appreciate it. I will uh, post. I'm really excited about posting it up. We'll include all the links that you would like me to include and. I'm sure it's not going to be our uh, last interaction. I'm looking forward to seeing what amazing impact you're going to make in this world. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon. See ya. Thank you.